Chapter Ten, Part One of Partial Portraits by Henry James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Rita Boutros. Chapter Ten, Georges de Maurier. Many years ago, a small American child who lived in New York and played in Union Square, which was then enclosed by a high railing and governed by a solitary policeman a strange superannuated dilapidated functionary carrying a little cane and wearing with a very copious and very dirty shirt front the costume of a man of the world a small american child was a silent devotee of punch half an hour spent to-day in turning over the early numbers transports him quite as much to old New York as to the London of the first Crystal Palace and the years that immediately followed it. From about 1850 to 1855 he lived, in imagination, no small part of his time in the world represented by the pencil of Leech. He pored over the pictures of the people riding in the row, of the cabmen and the costermongers, of the little pages in buttons, of the bathing machines at the seaside, of the small boys in tall hats and eaten jackets, of the gentlemen hunting the fox, of the pretty girls in striped petticoats and coiffures of the shape of the mushroom. These things were the features of a world which he longed so to behold, that the familiar woodcuts, they were not so good in those days as they have become since, grew at last as real to him as the furniture of his home, and when he at present looks at the punch of thirty years ago, he finds in it an odd association of medieval New York. He remembers that it was in such a locality in that city that he first saw such a picture. He recalls the fading light of the winter dusk, with the red fire and the red curtains in the background in which more than once he was bidden to put down the last numbers of the humorous sheet and come to his tea punch was england punch was london and england and london were at that time words of multifarious suggestion to this small american child he liked much more to think of the british empire than to indulge in the sports natural to his tender age and many of his hours were spent in making mental pictures of the society of which the recurrent woodcuts offered him specimens and revelations he had from year to year the prospect of really beholding this society he heard every spring from the earliest period that his parents would go to europe and then he heard that they would not and he had measured the value of the prospect with a keenness possibly premature. He knew the names of the London streets, of the theatres, of many of the shops. The dream of his young life was to take a walk in Kensington Gardens and go to Drury Lane to see a pantomime. There was a great deal in the old punch about the pantomimes, and harlequins and columbines peopled the secret visions of this perverted young New Yorker. It was a mystic satisfaction to him that he had lived in Piccadilly when he was a baby. He remembered neither the period nor the place, but the name of the latter had a strange delight for him. 
it had been promised him that he should behold once more that romantic thoroughfare. And he did so by the time he was twelve years old. Then he found that if Punch had been London, as he lay on the hearth-rug inhaling the exotic fragrance of the freshly arrived journal, London was Punch and something more. He remembers to-day, vividly, his impression of the London streets in the summer of 1855. They had an extraordinary look of familiarity, and every figure, every object he encountered, appeared to have been drawn by Leech. He has learned to know these things better since then, but his childish impression is subject to extraordinary revivals. The expansive back of an old lady getting into an omnibus, the attitude of a little girl bending from her pony in the park, the demureness of a maid-servant opening a street door in Brompton, the top-heavy attitude of the small Ameliar Anne, as she stands planted with the baby in her arms on the corner of a Westminster slum, the coal-heavers, the cabmen, the publicans, the butcher-boys, the flunkies, the guardsmen, the policemen, in spite of their change of uniform, are liable at this hour, in certain moods, to look more like sketchy tail-pieces than natural things. There are moments, indeed, not identical with those we speak of, in which certain figures, certain episodes in the London streets, strike an even stranger, deeper note of reminiscence. They remind the American traveller of Hogarth. He may take a walk in Oxford Street on some dirty winter afternoon, and find everything he sees Hogarthian. We know not whether the form of infantine nostalgia of which we speak is common, or was then common, among small Americans, but we are sure that, when fortune happens to favour it, it is a very delightful pain. In those days, in America, the manufacture of children's picture-books was an undeveloped industry. The best things came from London, and brought with them the aroma of a richer civilization. The covers were so beautiful and shining, the paper and print so fine, the colored illustrations so magnificent, that it was easy to see that over there the arts were at a very high point. The very name of the publisher on the title page, the small boy we speak of always looked at that, had a thrilling and mystifying effect. But, above all, the contents were so romantic and delectable. There were things in the English story-books that one read as a child, just as there were things in Punch that one couldn't have seen in New York, even if one had been fifty years old. The age had nothing to do with it. One had a conviction that they were not there to be seen. We can hardly say why. It is perhaps because the plates in the picture-books were almost always colored. But it was evident that there was a great deal more color in that other world. We remember well the dazzling tone of a little Christmas book by Leech, which was quite in the spirit of Punch, only more splendid for the plates were plastered with blue and pink. It was called Young Troublesome, or Master Jackie's Holidays, and it has probably become scarce today. 
It related the mischievous pranks of an Eton schoolboy while at home for his Christmas vacation, and the exploit we chiefly recollect was his blacking with a burnt stick the immaculate calves of the footman who was carrying up some savoury dish to the banquet from which, in consequence of his age and his habits, Master Jackie is excluded. Master Jackie is so handsome, so brilliant, so heroic, so regardless of dangers and penalties, so fertile in resources, and those charming young ladies, his sisters, his cousins, the innocent victims of his high spirits, had such golden ringlets, such rosy cheeks, such pretty shoulders, such delicate blue sashes over such fresh muslin gowns. Master Jackie seemed to lead a life all illumined with rosy Christmas fire. A little later came Richard Doyle's delightful volume, giving the history of Brown, Jones, and Robinson, and it would be difficult to exaggerate the action of these remarkable designs in forming the taste of our fantastic little amateur. They told him, indeed, much less about England than about the cities of the continent, but that was not a drawback, for he could take in the continent too. Moreover, he felt that these three travellers were intensely British. They looked at everything from the London point of view, and it gave him an immense feeling of initiation to be able to share their susceptibilities. Was there not also a delightful little picture at the end, which represented them as restored to British ground, each holding up a tankard of foaming ale, with the boots behind them rolling their battered portmanteau into the inn? This seemed somehow to commemorate one's own possible arrival in old England, even though it was not likely that overflowing beer would be a feature of so modest an event, just as all the rest of it was a foretaste of Switzerland, of the Rhine, of North Italy, which after this would find one quite prepared. We are sorry to say that when, many years later, we ascended for the first time to the roof of Milan Cathedral, what we first thought of was not the waveless plain of Lombardy, nor the beauty of the edifice, but the little London snob, whom Brown, Jones, and Robinson saw writing his name on one of the pinnacles of the church. We had our preferences in this genial trio. We adored little Jones, the artist. If memory doesn't betray us, we haven't seen the book for twenty years, and Jones was the artist. It is difficult to say why we adored him, but it was certainly the dream of our life at that foolish period to make his acquaintance. We did so, in fact, not very long after. We were taken in due course to Europe, and we met him on a steamboat on the Lake of Geneva. There was no introduction, we had no conversation, but he was the Jones we had prefigured and loved. Thackeray's Christmas books, The Rose and the Ring Apart, it dates from 1854, came before this. We remember them in our earliest years. They, too, were of the family of Punch, which is my excuse for this superfluity of preface, and they were a revelation of English manners. 
English manners, for a child, could of course only mean certain individual English figures, the figures in Our Street, in Dr. Birch and his young friends. We were glad we were not of the number. In Mrs. Perkins' Ball, in the first of these charming little volumes, there is a pictorial exposition of the reason why the nursemaids in our street like Kensington Gardens. When, in the course of time, we were taken to walk in those lovely shades, we looked about us for a simpering young woman and an insinuating soldier on a bench, with a bawling baby sprawling on the path hard by, and we were not slow to discover the group, Many people in the United States, and doubtless in other countries, have gathered their knowledge of English life almost entirely from punch, and it would be difficult to imagine a more abundant, and on the whole a more accurate informant. The accumulated volumes of this periodical contain evidence on a multitude of points of which there is no mention in the serious works, not even in the novels of the day. The smallest details of social habit are depicted there, and the oddities of a race of people in whom oddity is strangely compatible with the dominion of convention. That the ironical view of these things is given does not injure the force of the testimony, for the irony of punch, strangely enough, has always been discreet, even delicate. It is a singular fact that, though taste is not supposed to be the strong point of the English mind, this eminently representative journal has rarely been guilty of a violation of decorum. The taste of punch, like its good humor, has known very few lapses. The London Charivari we remember how difficult it was, in 1853, to arrive at the right pronunciation has in this respect very little to envy its Parisian original. English comedy is coarse, French comedy is fine. That would be the general assumption, certainly, on the part of a French critic. But a comparison between the back volumes of the Charivari and the back volumes of Punch would make it necessary to modify this formula. English humor is simple, innocent, plain, a trifle insipid, apt to sacrifice to the graces, to the proprieties. But if punch be our witness, English humor is not coarse. We are fortunately not obliged to declare just now what French humor appears to be, in the light of the Charivari, the Journal Amusant, the Journal pour rire. A Frenchman may say in perfect good faith that, to his sense, English drollery has doubtless every merit but that of being droll. French drollery, he may say, is salient, saltatory, whereas the English comic effort has little freedom of wing. The French in these matters like a great deal of salt whereas the English, who spice their food very highly and have a cluster of sharp condiments on the table, take their caricatures comparatively mild. Punch, in short, is for the family. Punch may be sent up to the nursery. This surely may be admitted, and it is the fact that punch is for the family that constitutes its high value." 
the family is after all the people and a satirical sheet which holds up the mirror to this institution can hardly fail to be instructive yes if it hold the mirror up impartially we can imagine the foreign critic to rejoin but in these matters the british caricaturist is not to be trusted he slurs over a great deal he omits a great deal more he must above all things be proper and there is a whole side of life which in spite of his juvenilian pretensions he never touches at all we must allow the foreign critic his supposed retort without taking space to answer back we may imagine him to be a bit of a naturalist and admit that it is perhaps because they are obliged to be proper that leech and dumouriez give us on the whole such a cleanly healthy friendly picture of english manners such sustained and inveterate propriety is in itself a great force it takes in a good deal as well as leaves out the general impression that we derive from the long series of punch is a very cheerful and favorable one it speaks of a vigorous good-humored much civilized people the good humor is perhaps the most striking point not only the good humor of the artist who represents the scene but that of the figures engaged in it the difference is remarkable in this respect between punch and the french comic papers the wonderful cham who for so many years contributed to those sheets had an extraordinary sense of the ludicrous and a boundless stock of facetious invention he was strangely expressive he could place a figure before you in the most violent action with half a dozen strokes of his pencil but his people were like wildcats and scorpions the temper of the french bourgeoisie as represented by cham is a thing to make one take to one's heels they perpetually tear and rend each other show their teeth and their claws kick each other downstairs and pitch each other from windows all this is in the highest degree farcical and grotesque but at bottom it is almost horrible it must be admitted that cham and his wonderful colleague daumier are much more horrible than gavarni who was admirably real and at the same time capable of beauty and grace Gavarni's women are charming, those of Cham and Daumier are monsters. There is nothing, or almost nothing, of the horrible in Punch. The author of these remarks has a friend whom he has heard more than once maintain the too ingenious thesis that the caricatures of Cham prove the French to be a cruel people. The same induction could at least never be made, even in an equal spirit of paradox, from the genial pages of Punch. If Punch is never horrible, it is because Punch is always superficial, for life is full of the horrible. So we may imagine our naturalistic objector to go on. However this may be, Punch is fortunate in having fallen on so smooth a surface. English life, as depicted by Leach and Du Maurier, 
and by that admirable Charles Keane, the best humoured perhaps of the three, whose talent is so great that we have always wondered why it is not more comprehensive, is a compound of several very wholesome tastes, the love of the country, the love of action, the love of a harmless joke within the limits of due reverence, the love of sport, of horses and dogs, of family life, of children, of horticulture. With this there are a few other tastes of a less innocent kind, the love of ardent spirits, for instance, or of punching people's heads, or even the love of a lord. In Leech's drawings country life plays a great part. His landscapes, in their extreme sketchiness, are often admirable. He gave in a few strokes the look of a hunting field in winter, the dark damp slopes, the black dense hedges, the low thick sky. He was very general, he touched on everything sooner or later, but he enjoyed his sporting subjects more than anything else. In this he was thoroughly English. No close observer of that people can fail to perceive that the love of sport is the thing that binds them most closely together, and in which they have the greatest number of feelings in common. Leech depicted with infinite vividness the accidents of the chase and of the fishing season, and his treatment of the horse in especial contributed greatly to his popularity. He understood the animal, he knew him intimately, he loved him, and he drew him as if he knew how to ride as well as to draw. The English forgive a great deal to those who ride well, and this is doubtless why the badness of some of the sporting subjects that have appeared in Punch since Leech's death has been tolerated. The artist has been presumed to have a good seat. Leech never made a mistake. He did well whatever he did and it must be remembered that for many years he furnished the political cartoon to punch as well as the smaller drawings he was always amusing always full of sense and point always intensely english his foreigner is always an inferior animal his Frenchman is the Frenchman of Leicester Square, the Frenchman whom the exhibition of 1851 revealed to the people of London. His point is perfectly perceptible. It is never unduly fine. His children are models of ruddy, chubby, shy, yet sturdy British babyhood, and nothing could be nicer than his young women. The English maiden in Leech is emphatically a nice girl, modest and fresh, simple and blooming, and destined evidently for use as much as for ornament. In those early days to which we referred at the beginning of this article, we were deeply in love with the young ladies of Leech, and we have never ceased to admire the simple art with which he made these hastily designed creatures conform unerringly to the English type. They have English eyes and English cheeks, English figures, English hands and feet, English ringlets, English petticoats. Leech was extremely observant, but he had not a strong imagination. He had a sufficient but not a high sense of beauty. His ideal of the beautiful had nothing of the unattainable. 
It was simply a résumé of the fresh faces he saw about him. The great thing, however, was that he was a natural, though not in the least an analytic or an exact draftsman. His little figures live and move. Many of his little scenes are stamped on the memory. I have spoken of his representations of the country, but his town pictures are numerous and capital. He knew his London, and his sketches of the good people of that metropolis are as happy as his episodes in the drawing-room and the hunting field. He was admirably broad and free, and no one in his line has had more than he the knack of giving what is called a general effect. He conveys at times the look of the London streets, the color, the temperature, the damp blackness. He does the winter weather to perfection. Long before I had seen it, I was acquainted through his sketches with the aspect of Baker Street in December. Out of such a multitude of illustrations, it is difficult to choose. The two volumes of Sketches of Life and Character, transferred from Punch, are a real museum. But I recall, for instance, the simple little sketch of the worthy man up to his neck in bed on a January morning, to whom, on the other side of the door, the prompt housemaid, with her hammer in her hand, announces that, "'I have just broken the ice in your bath, sir.' The black cold dawn, the very smell of the early chill, that raw sootiness of the London winter air, the red nose of the housemaid, the unfashionable street seen through the window, impart a peculiar vividness to the small inky-looking woodcut. End of chapter 10, part 1, Georges de Maurier.